Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Hey, Happy New Year! Super awake. Let's try that again. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. There we go. Hey, well, uh, we're so glad that you were here today. We missed you last week, um, but we had just a little bit of snow, and we want to make sure that you guys uh, were safe. Snow is exciting. Yes. It's like heaven's dandruff. Um, it leaves a lot, of, uh, a lot of people stranded sometimes. Well, we wanted to uh, take a time uh, here this morning and uh, just have a special focus here today, and there's something that I've been reading in God's Word recently that really impacted my heart. Um, but knowing that we might be coming in kind of sleepy, um, I asked my friend Eric um, to bring in something here this morning. So let's see if you guys are awake. Eric, would you would you come on up? We're going to see if um, see how awake you guys are. Now, now we're in Oregon, and usually California gets the rep that like maybe California might be a little bit um, suspect at driving skills. But let's see if you guys know. So this color means what? Nice job. Okay, let's try the next one. Now, that, that's my favorite color. That's my kids' favorite color, too. They, they like to see that one. Now, how about this one? What's this, what this yell at mean? No, it means go faster. It means go fast. That's, that's what it means to me. Okay, let's try this last one. That's pretty good. We're also not going to leave this on the whole time because it might give some of you guys an odd uh, sunburn. So, what, what does this one mean? No, it means you didn't go fast enough. Now, you can turn that one off. Thanks, Eric, for uh, um, bringing that this morning. Can we actually thank him real quick for bringing that? Thanks, man. Well, here this morning, what I wanted to do uh, was encourage us here from God's Word how I believe that, that we can make the world stop and notice, that we actually have the opportunity, and I believe also the calling um, and the ability to make the world stop and notice. In your notes here today, I have something written down for you guys, a recent quote that I came across. Alistair Begg said this. He said, the prevailing wind is no longer behind Bible-believing Christians. Indeed, the wind appears to be blowing hard behind the forces of secularism. We are having to face the fact that what the Bible says concerning believers in this world is our reality, that we really are aliens, that we really are strangers, It may be tempting to respond by growing angry, keeping our heads down, or giving up altogether. But this isn't the first time that God's people have had to figure out how to live confidently and faithfully in a world that opposes God's ways and God's word. I think that's an incredible quote. Uh, I had the opportunity to come alongside middle school and high school students, and and a number of the students, they, they share names of people that they want to see come to know Jesus. They say, can we pray for this person that goes to my school at Cascade or at Leslie or at Crossler? I get texts from some of you guys. Please pray for me. I want to see this person come to know Jesus. Pray that I would have passion, that I would have conviction and clarity and, and that I would know how to share God's love for them. You might be here today, like I am, who have family and friends who are far far away from Jesus. They're out in the far country. Like a sheep, they've nibbled their way to bad grass. How do we reach this generation? Two young pastors actually asked me that question just a couple weeks ago. How do we reach this young generation? How do we reach this generation for Jesus? How do we come alongside them when it seems like there's absolutely no interest, and many times there's not even a reference for who God is? And many times we actually uh, see that there's a hostility toward him. Just recently there was a kid that came to our youth group and we were sharing the gospel and we might talk about him later. And I said, hey buddy, do you know what the word sin means? He had never heard of the word sin. And for us that have grown up in the church, you're like, what? But those are the kids that are coming to our youth group. Those are the people that we're rubbing shoulders with. How do we reach that generation? How do we make that world, this world, stop and notice Jesus. Well, I believe that God's word has something to say about that. If you have your Bible, would you open up with me here to 1 Peter chapter 3? And even as I say that title of the book, 1 Peter, like myself, I've been going to this church for over 20 years, and many of us spent about 10 of those years in this book. And so this, uh, 
this, uh, this, this is a favorite passage of mine, but one recently that's been impacting me very personally. Would you stand with me and let's read God's word together. We're going to just read two verses here this morning. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. You believe that those words are relevant for today? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We ask now that you would speak through your word and it would hit our hearts where we need it most. God, we thank you so much and we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You can take your seats. If you're here this morning, you, uh, you said, I, I want to show up. I want to hear something from God's word. I, I believe that we are all here interested to hear how to make a difference, how to make the world stop. And I think in three easy uh, simple ways here for this morning. Hard to apply, but easy to say. How to make the world stop looks like this. It begins with worship. How to make the world stop and notice it begins with worship. It's seen in our witness, and it's carried out and communicated through our walk. How to make the world stop and notice is seen and begins in our worship. It's seen in our witness, and it's carried out in our walk. Now, to help us understand this passage as we're coming into it right out of uh, New Year's and our break, I wanted to give just a little context that I believe that'll help us here this morning get in the shoes of those who are receiving this letter for the first time. Now, the person who wrote this, uh, it bears the, he bears the name of the book. It's Peter, Simon Peter. And you might read in the New Testament another name, Cephas, that's his Aramaic name, and this man, Peter, was one who made the world stop and notice. He was a surly fisherman. He owned a fishing business with James and John. He was a very close friend of Jesus for three years, spent every single day with Jesus. He saw miracles. He saw people fed. He saw people rise again from the dead. He was there at the mob when the mob came in. And if you remember, he's the one that sliced the ear of Malchus. He saw Jesus brutally murdered and then rise again. This man, Peter, became a pillar of the early church. And according to church history, he eventually died for his faith. Now, Peter wrote this right around the time of 63 to 65 AD. Now, during that time, there was a Roman emperor. His name was Nero. And he was on the throne. He was the fifth of the emperors of his family and the last one to rule in Rome. This man, Nero who was ruling at the time of Peter's writing, he was 17 years old when he became emperor. A junior in high school was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Nice. He reigned for 14 years. And he ruled so well that he completely depleted the entire nation of all their assets, just like a 17-year-old would. On July 18th in 64 AD, there was a great fire that took place in Rome. Now, Nero's response, and you might be familiar with this, Nero's response was that of diversion and deflection. He didn't want the people to point to him and continue to blame him for his poor political decisions. No, he instead diverted all the attention to the Christians who were growing in number. Nero diverted, and he said it's their fault. He blamed the Christians who had been growing in many. Now, Nero actually housed many of the people that were displaced in Rome during this time. There's about 11 sections in Rome that were affected by the fire, seven that were completely destroyed. And in his benevolence and uh, compassion, he actually housed many of the homeless people in his backyard. But Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, he wrote that Nero implicated many of these Christians for crimes that they didn't commit. Christians were thrust into arenas, and they were actually a place there, and they had the hides of animals placed on the backs of them and then were ripped apart by dogs. Many of the Christians who had done nothing were crucified. Or in the backyard of Nero, they were placed up on a stick and used as a, a nightlight in his backyard for his parties. Christians were criminals in that day. Christians were the ones who were running. Christians were persecuted for their faith. 
They were dispersed all across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These were the people that Peter was writing to. These Jewish believers that had just come to know Jesus, these were the people that Peter was encouraging with this letter. Running Christians dispersed for their faith. Now imagine receiving this letter for the first time. Imagine receiving this as you're displaced from your home. You're no longer living in the same zip code. And you receive this letter or hear it for the first time. And Peter, who you've heard about or maybe met, he says this in chapter 2, verse 11, that kind of gives us the context. He says this, dear friends. Now stop. I'm Peter's friend? Wait, I know who Peter is. He calls me his friend. He hung out with Jesus. Oh my God, what does he have to say? Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens, strangers and exiles, oh, he gets me. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Oh, he gets me. Oh, he knows what I'm going through. What he continues to do, and I'd really encourage you this week to read chapters 2 and 3, is he delineates and defines what it means to conduct yourselves in a good way, in, in a way that the Gentiles would go, that's different. In the next two chapters, he lays out what actually makes a difference and what's a contrast in the world is through submission, is through suffering, is through serving, and is through sincerity. And it brings us, after all those verses, to our passage today in chapter 3. And just as those believers back then that Peter wanted to encourage to endeavor to answer the same question that we have 2,000 years later of how do you make the world stop and notice? How do you make the world stop and notice? How do you make an impact for Jesus in a world that seemingly is disinterested in who God is? Here in verse 15 and 16, Peter encourages us. And our first point here this morning is this. How to make the world stop and notice, it begins with worship. Read this with me again in verse 15. It says this, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts regard the Christ as Lord as holy. Peter does an incredible thing here. Just a couple words as he sets our eyes on heaven and sets our eyes on what will make an impact. He says, in your hearts. That word heart there, it's, it, it means your, uh, your mind, your heart, your soul, all of who you are. The Greek word is actually cardia. In your hearts, all of who you are, regard Christ. Now, if you ever wondered what Jesus' last name was, it's not Christ. It's not Jesus Christ like the way we treat last names. No, Christ would have been his title. Christ, and that word there means anointed one. The one that the entire Old Testament pointed to and said that he is the Messiah. He's the one that's going to bring the answer to this world's problems. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. That word Lord there uh, means master. It means one who's lifted up, one who's above all. And that last word holy, it means set apart. Now there's a lot of pictures here in just this power-packed bit, and I just want to pull out a couple things. What Peter's doing here in, these first couple, in this first uh, verse here in verse 15 is he actually quotes Isaiah 8.13. And I'd have you write that down. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he is exhorting a king, King Ahaz. And what King Ahaz was doing is he was about to commit political suicide. And he was fearful and he was completely foolish in all his decision making. And Isaiah said in one sentence, similar to Peter, you are to regard, in Isaiah, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. What was Isaiah getting at? The same thing Peter was getting at. That God's high and above. He's far above any of the squabblings in this world and any of the confusion in this place. Look to him. Don't fear man. Fear the God who owns armies, who owns galaxies and holds them in his hand. The second picture that Peter's getting at here, uh, when he says that 
um, that we are to regard Christ the Lord as holy. That word holy also means something that's set apart. He's not only high and above, but set apart. And back in the day, um, during Peter's time, what pagan uh, worship centers, what they would do, is say they were to buy a whole plot of land. Or maybe they were to buy a bunch of different homes. And say someone lived in this home, and your aunt lived over there, and your Uncle Bernie lived over there. But that building, that one was completely set apart for our pagan worship rituals. And they'd say, they might all look the same, all these buildings might look the same, but that one's set apart just for our worship center. God was going to be high and lifted up. And the people, as they read this, they would understand, they would have understood what being set apart was. That there would be certain places set apart for specific and distinct purposes. Peter was saying, God's high and lifted up. He's distinct. But also one more thing. Did you see that word Lord there? But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now this isn't the first time that Peter said this word. Can, do any of you guys remember the other time that he said this word? And maybe actually the first time he ever used the word Lord. Remember that moment? There was a time when Jesus, he was preaching and he was teaching. And these two boats came in from the Sea of Galilee. And he looks over, and there's Peter. And he says, hey, I want you to go, go back out. Hey, um, you know, we kind of do the whole fishing thing, sir, master. I, I, I get it, but we kind of get this, like, we're the experts here. We've been doing this all night. But fine, you look like you know what you're talking about. I'll go send him out again. And he goes back out into the Sea of Galilee, drops the nets down into the deep, and what happens? They pull up a whole net full of fish, and the boat begins to sink. And they say, we, there's more fish coming. Come on over here. And there's another boat that comes over, and that begins to sink because it's so full. And what is Peter's response in that moment? He gets down on his knees, and he says, Oh, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I don't deserve to know you. I, I am a sinful man. I know who I am. The first time that Peter said this word, Lord, was out of shame, maybe out of guilt, unworthiness to even be in Jesus' presence. When he encourages the believers here to set Jesus, to set Christ as Lord, he gets it. He knows that he's the only one that can help. He's seen it. He saw it for three years, that he's the only one that's high and above anything, that he's distinct, the only one that can help, and the only one that truly is the master, the master of the universe, the master of all. Now, I don't know if you can relate with me here this morning, but... I think if we're honest, though, many times in our own lives, we look at our relationships, we look at the burdens of those around us, we look at what maybe we've done or what is going on in our life, and we say, I feel as if, though, I have to be the master of everything, that I have to have the world's burdens on my back. I, I feel as if I have everything on my shoulders. There was a gentleman, his name was Bruce Larson. He was a counselor and a Christian um, minister for many years. And he worked in New York City for a time. And he counseled there in an office. And he said this. He counseled in an office, and there was a number of people who were wrestling with yes or no decisions. And he would often suggest that they walk from his office down to the RCA building there on Fifth Avenue. And in the entrance of that building was a gigantic statue of Atlas. You guys know the picture of him? He's a beautifully proportioned man with all his muscles straining. He's holding the world upon his shoulders. And there he is, the most powerfully built man in the world. And he can barely stand up under this burden. Now, that's one way to live, I would point out to my companion, trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But why don't you come across the street? Let me show you a different picture. And on the other side of Fifth Avenue, there's another building. And in it, there's this little tiny figure of a boy of Jesus. And he has to be eight or nine years old. And with no effort in his hand, he's holding the entire world. And his point was illustrated perfectly. 
Because isn't this our problem too? We want our friends and our family, and we want our world to change around us. We want the world to stop and notice Jesus. But we end up feeling like it's resting upon our shoulders when the whole time what God is saying, stop and notice, it's in my hands. It's in my hands. He is the one that's high and above. He is the one that's distinct. He is the one that's the Lord and master of all. The scripture says that he holds galaxies in his hand. Psalm 97 says the mountains tremble. They melt like wax. But many times we feel like we have to be the ones like Atlas bearing the burdens of the world around us when God's saying, it's in my hands. Making the world stop and notice first begins with worship. My question for you here this morning is this. How does God's superiority affect your worship? How does knowing that God holds the world in his hands affect your life? Because we know from Romans that worship is not just on a Sunday morning. That all things that we live and breathe unto God. Because if I don't see that God really is the master and Lord of all, I'm going to try to take it into my hands. And I'm going to try to solve the problems and the burdens of this world in my own hands. How's that working out? God's saying, no, stop and notice. It's in my hands. Making the world stop and notice first begins with worship. Now, Peter continues here in verse 15. And he says, says an incredible thing here in verse 15. He says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I believe that a witness of hope invites conversations about the gospel. A witness of hope invites conversations about the gospel. Remember who he's speaking to. Those Christians who could be on their way to the arena. Those Christians who could be in prison soon. Those Christians who are seen as criminals and persecuted, who are running for their lives. Speaking to them. And he's saying, be ready at any time. You might have a conversation with your jailer. You might have a conversation with your boss. You might have a conversation with your neighbor. You don't know. You might have a conversation with someone that texted you last night at 1130. You might have a conversation tomorrow at work. What'd you do over New Year's? I don't want to talk about it. What'd you do? I went to church. Why'd you go to church? You might have a conversation with anyone at any time. Because really, you know what the Christian life is like? The Christian life is like spaghetti, but it's not like a tray of ice cubes. Now you're like, that's random. Let me help you out. <laughs> Christian life is like spaghetti. Why? Everything and everywhere, God uses our lives, our stories, and the gospel, and all the relationships are mixed up and all together. It's not clear like an ice cube tray where this is my time to go to church, this is my time to talk to someone about God, and I might pray later today. No, we know this, that our lives are connected in so many different ways. And that what's something that you said six years ago might affect me today. And something that something, uh, someone might say today might affect you in six years. Everything is interconnected in that. We never know when we're going to have a gospel conversation. Peter says, be ready at any time. It could happen later today at your fa favorite fast food joint. But you know what we do many times as Christians? Read this verse with me. In verse 15, it says, we're ready at any time to give a defense, and we get super excited. We stop reading the rest of the verse. We seek to give a defense, and we go, oh, God needs me to defend his word. He needs me to take up arms and defend what is true. He needs me to be an avenger. Perry Mason, Maury Povich, Judge Judy. He needs me to do that. He needs me to act for him. Now, I do believe that there is a vital place in the church, in the Christian faith, for knowing why you believe what you believe. Knowing why you believe. And many of the people who encourage us the most are those that used to be huge skeptics of the faith. Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, Josh McDowell, former atheists that dove down into, why do you believe this stuff to be true? That's a vital place. We need that within the Christian faith and community. But we need to read the whole verse. It says, Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope 
that's within you. For a reason for the hope that's within you. People might ask you, New Testament Christian, why are you okay? Why are you okay? I mean, you're homeless, you're persecuted, you're running for your lives, Nero's on the throne. Why are you okay? Can you, can you tell me that? And I think the same question still applies to us today. To help us understand this, though, we need to ask the question of what is hope and what fuels that hope. I'd have you write this down real quick. A quick definition of what hope is, is this. Hope is a confident expectation that God will fulfill promises found in his word. Hope is a confident expectation that God will fulfill promises found in his word. Biblical hope is different than Instagrammable hope. Instagrammable hope says it's 2022. It's going to be a better year. You know why? Because 2022 is an even number. Mm. This year is going to be better. Why? The numbers are down. Sports is back. And there's a new show on Disney+. Plus. Instagrammable and worldly hope, it's fleeting. Biblical hope is much different. And to help us understand that, we have a little video from the Bible Project people. They're going to help us understand what hope is. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the flood waters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava. The feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, At this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. 
more than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Pis of glory. In both cases, this El Pis is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack there, but that last statement answers the question of what fuels hope. Biblical hope is an optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man risen from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. That word, El Peace, that is our word here in verse 15. Now, remember who wrote this. I keep coming back to that because I think it's so important. Peter was the one who wrote this. Peter was the man who saw people, a gentleman being brought through the roof to be healed. Peter was the man who saw thousands and thousands of people fed with just a few loaves of bread and fish. Peter was someone who got hopelessness. Peter was someone who got hopelessness. Just as the mob had taken Jesus away from the garden. Do you remember this moment? A little girl walks up to him and goes, you're one of his followers, right? No, I'm not. And another comes by and says, you were one of his disciples, weren't you? No. And then another crowd comes by. I saw you in the garden. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I can imagine as Jesus goes to the cross that Peter continues to think, He was going to be my king. He was going to be the ruler. He was going to be the one who's going to rule and reign. It was going to solve everything. I was going to rule with him. And then to see him whipped and stripped and a thorn, a crown of thorns thrust upon his head, carried across, hung, stakes driven through him, brutally murdered, and then taken off and then put in a tomb. Hope was dead. The future was dead. All was lost. And then in a moment, he hears, the tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. What? Wait, no, 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 no. What? And he runs out and he searches. And what does he find? The tomb is empty. Hope is alive. Jesus is alive. The whole world needs to hear this, that hope is alive. That you can have a future because of the one who rose again. Peter said it simply in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter witnessed Christ's resurrection and affected his days and promises for eternity. It fueled his hope. What fueled his hope was the resurrection. It fueled his evangelism, despite any circumstance. He was a man that the world stopped and noticed. And if you're like me, you might carry around the picture of someone who also made the world stop and notice quite a lot when when he lived. Now, they aren't worth very much, but the gentleman whose resemblance is on this coin, his name is Abraham Lincoln. This man made an incredible impact on our country. He was the president of our country, but he, uh, he battled depression and melancholy, and it's, it's very well documented, for much of his life. He lost a good friend when he was younger to typhoid fever. Later married, lost his firstborn son when he was very old, and then his secondborn son, who's pictured here, his name was Willie. Willie was his favorite son. 
Willie was his joy. And Willie also contracted typhoid fever and passed away. Lincoln, after the death of his son Willie, was completely convulsed in sorrow, overcome with grief. And one of the ministers in the area, his name was Dr. Francis Vinton, came in and sat next to Lincoln and said this to him, Abraham, your son is alive. Your son is alive. And Abraham said, alive, alive, completely dumbfounded. He said, he he can't be alive. Surely you mock me. No, said the minister. It's accepted as one of the most comforting doctrines in the church and founded upon the words of Jesus alone. In Luke, it says this, and Dr. Francis Vinton said, Fear is, for, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Your son is alive in heaven. Alive. Lincoln was struck, especially by the visitor's confident words, Your son is alive. And a historian said this might have been the first experience in Lincoln's life, so far as we know, which drove him to look outside of his own mind and heart for help to endure a personal grief. It was the first time in his life when he had not been sufficient for his own experience. Historians say it was actually at this moment that Lincoln's clarity and vision set him for the many years to come as he walked through the Civil War and many other circumstances. But I ask you a question, what gave him hope? What gave Lincoln hope? was that he'd see his son. But can I ask you another question? What fueled his hope? The words of the son. The words of the son gave him hope. The words that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, what will fuel our hope here and today in 2022 is not fleeting optimism that things might get better because someone said so. No, it's because of the proven Jesus who rose again the resurrection of the Christ, that is what's going to fuel our hope. And what the world will stop and go, that's different. That's different. I think people want contrast in this world. I, pe- I think that people in the world around us wants something different because it's already been filling itself up on a bunch of the same things. And it's not working. It's not working. You have an opportunity to share with the world something it doesn't have, and that's hope. How has God met you in your life? As I was standing in the back this morning, I just looked around, and I could name almost 30 different stories of how God has specifically, sovereignly walked along many of you through circumstances that are unreal. The world doesn't have hope. The world doesn't have Jesus. You have an opportunity to share that witness of hope, to share that hope that the world desperately needs. Because it is hopeless. It doesn't have the words of the Son. It doesn't know the resurrected Christ. You do. A witness of hope invites conversations for the gospel. The world wants to know why you're different in your marriage. The world wants to know why, even in a trial in your family or relationships, why you're okay. Why you keep showing up to church. Why you keep reading that book. Why you have peace in a political turmoil season. And you're not complaining like the rest of the world. Because that's just what they do. Why are you different? The world wants to know why. I believe that this verse says that you have an opportunity to make the world stop and notice. But it's going to be by your hope and nothing else. A witness of hope invites conversations about the gospel. So I have a question for you here this morning. When have you witnessed hope? During a past trial in your life, and I want you to think just for a moment, we'll pause here. When did you witness God walking closely with you? It could have been this last year. It could have been, can be actually right now. When are you seeing, and how have you seen God walk closely with you? How could those moments actually influence how you present the gospel? Maybe you walk through a time of death, a time of loss, I talked to a gentleman this morning who the news actually did a report on his family. And they searched and searched and searched for this small item. And there were so many people searching for this. And he had an opportunity to share the gospel. 
The world wants to know. The world wants something different than it's already been getting. In the past trial in your life, how did God walk alongside you? And how could those moments influence how you present the gospel? I believe that how to make the world stop and notice begins with worship. I believe it's seen through our witness. And I believe it's, it's confirmed and it's communicated through our walk. In verse 16, Peter continues and says this. And I'll actually start in verse 15 again. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord is holy, ready at any time, I love that, to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the hope that's in you. For the hope that's in you. Yet, and here's the, here's the kicker. I love this. Yet, do this with gentleness and respect. <laughs> yes, it actually says that. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Man, that doesn't sound like the world. That's so countercultural. That's so outside of how we think. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. If anyone to have a right to complain and to come with a comeback, it would have been the Christians. It would have been these people that he's writing to. They're homeless. They're persecuted. They're unjustly treated. Yet he says, do it with gentleness and respect. It's almost as if Peter is saying, you know, fighting fleshy problems with fleshly responses will never get a spiritual outcome. It's almost as if he's saying, that doesn't work. What, uh, Pastor Pete a couple weeks ago quoted Galatians 3, which says, you who began in the spirit, do you think you're going to be perfected in the flesh? It's a similar thing. Why do we expect that in this battle, in this life, that a fleshly response would solve a fleshly problem? It, it doesn't. We need something outside of ourselves. We need something way bigger than ourselves. We need something from the one who's high and above, who's distinct, who's set apart. We need something from God. And here's the words. With gentleness and respect. Now, if you're taking notes, this first word, gentleness, it's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. It's the same word that's um, listed there in the fruit of the Spirit. This word, gentleness, it means humility. It reflects someone who's dependent. It's where we get our word meek. This word, it means it's a patient suffering of injuries without the need for revenge. I love that. We see it in the, almost personified in a horse. A horse with all of its strength and ability to gallop and run so fast. It's so strong. It can pull things. It can, it can carry things. And yet, a small child can come up and comb its the side. It has all the strength, yet is gentle. It has the ability to change something in a moment, but yet reserves it. It's the opposite of being ostentatious, impetuous, and self-sufficient. This word gentleness here, and we know this to be true because it's in the fruit of the Spirit, only God can produce this in someone. This is when we abide close to Him, when we are near Him, this is what comes out. Gentleness comes out of someone amidst trial. Gentleness comes out of someone who's close to God. This is only possible if you're walking in the Spirit. And the second word here is respect. This word means fear and reverence. It's a conscious sense of the presence of God. You know that God is doing something, and this isn't up to you. It's the opposite of frivolity, passivity, and self-aggrandizement. It's someone who sees God as so high and lifted up and distinct and holy. Now, you're probably wondering, are we ever going to come back to the, the, the traffic light over here? <laughs> now, I, we tested it out earlier, and I'm really glad we didn't leave it on the whole time. We should have brought, like, some sunglasses. But I, what I wanted to do is give us some really practical things here as we're almost done about how to share the hope that's within us in gentleness and respect. What, what would this actually look like? And I thought that uh, a traffic light could help us this morning as we see them, hopefully, um, and we obey what it says on a daily basis. Jim Cece many years ago helped us also see this, um, but we're going to kind of tweak it a little bit. 
When we look at a stoplight, we see there's a green light, a yellow light, and a red light. And this example we use in cause quite a bit with students. What would a, what would a, what would a green light conversation look like as we're encountering, sharing our faith, or talking to someone, and someone's really, really excited about coming to know Jesus. And they see the hope that's within you. They're, they're hearing something. They need something different. They want a contrast. And man, I want to come to know Jesus now, right? What would a, what would a conversation look like that that's, that's out of gentleness and respect? Well, let me encourage you, in every single light and in every single conversation, it's got to be bathed in prayer. As we respect that God is completely in control, he's laid out these good works, he's the one that's bringing these conversations up. That as we're praying, we're going, God, you're the one who's saving here. You're the one who's changing hearts. You're the one who's making the world stop and notice. Help me get out of the way. There was a gentleman that I uh, spoke about earlier who came to a youth group, and uh, he came with his buddy, and we did games, we did some worship time, we had a short message, and they were in D teams, and uh, we're talking about the handful of hope. We start off with the first one that says, God loves you. Did you know that God loves you? And he's like, well, okay. Um, and like right immediately, I'm like, dude, he might, not, he might not know what we're talking about. And then I said, well, God loves us. And we talked about how he holds galaxies in his hands, yet Psalm 56 says he holds our tears in a bottle. He's that God that's so big, yet he's so intimately acquainted with all our ways. Well, that, that God we've sinned against. In order to be with him, we have to have our sin taken care of. Do you, do you know what sin is? He's like, wait, what? You don't, you, you've never heard what sin is. And the other students are like, what? Come on, dude. You don't know what sin is? And I was like, okay, pause, just a second. So what does gentleness look like? Gentleness, <laughs> gentleness is patient. When we're in a green light conversation, we got to be patient. Why? Because this might be the first time that they've ever heard about Jesus. This might be the first time that they've ever heard about sin. They, there's no reference now. We're in a post-Christian world. We can't assume that everyone knows everything about God in the Bible. We, we have to be patient as we encounter these conversations with people that have no reference for who God is. When we're having green light conversations, we got to be slow. Now, here's the cool thing. He came to, to believe. I believe that Christ died, was buried, and rose again for all of my sins. And I do want to trust him as my Savior we said, hey, buddy, do you want to believe in that? He said, yes. Okay. It's like, so we prayed, and he, with his buddy, I'm like, dude, you guys keep talking, okay? And his dad came in. I'm like, hey. I think his name was Xavier. Xavier just came to know Jesus. And the dad's like, what? No way. It's like, Xavier, you talk to him. Okay, you keep coming back. You're always welcome here. No matter what, whatever question you got, we want to walk alongside you. When we're encountering green light conversations, Let's pray. Let's be patient. Let's bathe in patience. Let's go slow. The second one, what is a yellow light conversation? What does a yellow light conversation look like? Again, we're respecting that God is the one that's brought this conversation. God's the one that's brought this interaction. There was a student a number of years ago that came, um, I think it was, it was his entire senior year, and he was a very outspoken atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God's word. This is all a bunch of rubbish. I don't want any of this. And he would come over and over and over. And I was like, buddy, could we meet for coffee? He's like, okay. And we met a number of times. God's word's not true. It's fake. There's no proof for it. All this kind of stuff. And, I'm, and like, there were so many low-hanging fruits of like, well, that's contradictory what you said here and here and here. Like, bro, like, come on. Yeah, I, th- I was thinking the same thing. I was like, dude, you you know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense what you're saying. And then he said on a Thursday, he's like, you know what? Thursdays, I, I hate Thursdays. I'm like, why? Because every Thursday, my dad used to beat me. And I paused for a second. I said, I am really sorry. All those responses then made sense. Why you wouldn't want God. Why your picture of a father didn't make sense why you didn't want God in your life at all, why you were like fighting so hard against him. I believe that yellow light conversations, I believe that what gentleness looks like is it listens. As we encounter conversations that might be 10, 20, 30, 
interactions in a row, I, I think they, we have to pause and consider that they might not come to know Christ right now. We need to continue listening and listening because there could be something more to the story. There could be something more that's going on, the reason why they're not just greenlighting it right away. There could be something more going on. What about the red light? Again, any of these interactions have to be bathed in prayer. But a red light interaction, I'll, I'll say, I don't think is the norm for us. I don't think it's something that we encounter very often. But our church endeavored to do an amazing ministry called the Isaiah 58 Project. And that was something in which moms had this idea of how can we serve amidst this quarantine COVID season? I know. And they came together and they made all these bags and put in all these things for homeless people so that they could drive up, roll down the window, and the kids would pass out the window and say, you matter, God loves you. Well, we were doing that one day and we were driving in West Salem over by Hawaiian time. And there was a gentleman there on the side who was, it was obvious that he was struggling and homeless. My kids said, daddy, daddy, let's get him some food. It's like, okay. So I went to Hawaiian time, got out of the car, got some food, walked over and said, hi, how are you, sir? Good, good. Nice to meet you. And we talked for a little bit and I said, hey, my kids, and we just want to let you know that you matter and we love you and, and that God loves you. And as soon as I said God, he started cussing at me. He started yelling at me. He started just throwing arrows at me. And so I said, okay, sir, um, hope you have a good day. I'll be praying. And I walked away. Now, you might say, that's an isolated moment. That's an isolated red light moment, which is true. And you say, you know what? I have someone in my family who's been in a red light for 15 years, who's been in a red light for 20 years. There, I, I feel as if there's no hope. What does gentleness and respect look like there? Because there, there's nothing I can see in the foreseeable future of any heart change. Well, first of all, I want to say this. I'm sorry. I can relate to you. I, I have people in my life who have been in a red light situation for many, many years. But can I tell you something that encourages my heart? God's all about changing red lights into green lights. And he's someone and the only one that can do that. And it happens through prayer and through washing, 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 washing feet in a humble response. Because the way to make the world stop and notice, I really believe, is through an impactful walk characterized by humble responses. What is God leading you to wash that individual's feet over and over? It could be that gentleman that I met. He might have come to know Christ the next day if I just gave him our <laughs> plate of food. Who knows? Who knows? I believe an impactful walk is characterized by humble responses. I don't know what 2022 is going to look for us. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know I've gone over just a little bit. I don't know what this year is going to look like. It could be the end of a three-part series in the COVID Chronicles, or it could be like part four and 40. Who knows? I don't know. But I pray that our hope is not fleeting optimism, but I pray what the world gets is a hope that's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's, that's firmly gripped to eternity. As bathed in worship, seen in our witness, in our walk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our hearts. God, you want to use us. I, I know you want to use us to make the world stop and notice for you, Jesus, for the gospel, for the good news that changes lives. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity now to take your word and to apply it. We, we can't run from these words now. We, we have to do something with them. I thank you so much. God, help us to be specific now in our prayers. Wherever you've placed us, you've placed people around us that need you. I pray that they get hope. I pray that they see hope, a living hope. God, thank you so much. We love you and praise things in your name. Amen.